James chapter 4. We've been making our way through the book of James. It's been quite a ride. James is a very honest person. Honest in the good things and honest in the hard things. And this is what he says in chapter 4, verse 11. Don't criticize one another, brothers. He who criticizes a brother or judges his brother criticizes the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So I don't know about you, but I find it interesting that he says, don't criticize one another. And he says that in the context of a letter that is nothing but criticism. I mean, James has been hurting my feelings now for about six months. In a letter of criticism, how does he say, don't criticize one another? Brothers, well, it means to speak against, and we'll talk about that in just a second. But there definitely are relationships that God has ordained that criticism will be a necessary part. In fact, Jesus lays out for us how to make that criticism happen in a way that would honor him. He gives us a specific strategy. So as you, you, you read the scripture, you find criticism is a thing that can be blessed by God, but in certain specific relationships. Like in your family, criticism is going to be necessary. I remember about two years ago, I don't know if you remember, but I wasn't wearing this microphone that's attached to my face. I was holding a microphone in my hand, and, and I was usually holding my Bible in the other hand. And that was because the week before that, I was talking with my wife, Amanda, about the sermon and the message and all that was, you know, I was hoping to say and hoping God would do. And she said, you know, while you're thinking about this week's message, uh, you need to watch what you do with your hands. I was like, what do I do with my hands? You know, I should have just said, yeah, okay, that sounds great. But I asked some follow-up questions and she's like, well, I love you so much. And as gently as possible, she just said, you're just doing some weird things with your hands and you have this order that you do them in. You touch, you know, your leg here and then you do this weird thing with your hands and then you go back over here and you're like kind of in this circle and I stopped listening to you preach a long time ago and I'm just watching this cycle of weird hand motions that you're making. I was like, thank you very much. Anything else you'd be like to say to me now in this moment of honesty? But I couldn't stop. I couldn't make myself stop. So the way that I trained myself was I would hold a microphone in one hand and a Bible in my other hand, and that just helped me. You're not going to listen to the rest of the message today. You're just going to watch what I'm doing with my hands. I'm okay with that. But in a family, criticism is going to be necessary if you have children. God is going to use good criticism to train up your children in the way that they should go. You have certain friendships. The criticism is going to be a necessary part of those friendships. Now, there is an assumption when the Bible does tell us how to go about criticism, and that assumption is very important. It's not an assumption that most of us have when we go to criticize, but the biblical assumption is that the criticism would come from your lips straight to their ears. That's not how we handle it. We like to... Criticism to leave our lips into somebody else's ears and into somebody else's ears and God forbid ever their ears. 
But the biblical assumption is in the appropriate relationships when that criticism happens, it's going to happen straight from your mouth to their ears. So it's your family, it's friends, potentially. Uh, Maybe you're in authority, you're a manager, you're a boss, you're a leader, you're a shepherd. There's going to be some criticism that comes along with that. In discipleship relationships, all of us should have some people younger in the faith than us, that we say to them what the Apostle Paul said to one of his churches, which he said, you follow me as I follow Christ. You watch me, I'm watching Jesus. This is how we train up people in the faith. You follow me, you do what I do. You read the scripture in the way that I read the scripture, and then I'm following Jesus. And so there should be somebody or a group of somebodies that you turn around and that's your relationship with him. That's not just a pastor's responsibility. That's not just a deacon's responsibility. That's not just an elder's responsibility. That's everybody's responsibility. And so in that relationship, there may be some moments where criticism is necessary. It's the idea that the Apostle Paul communicates in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when he says this in verse 11, to us, seek to lead a quiet life to mind your own business. You ever said that phrase to somebody? Mind your own business. I used to say to my sister when we were little, mind your own beeswax. You know, try that on for size. It feels good to say it. Mind your own business. That's what the Apostle Paul says. Mind your own business. And that should be our general rule of thumb. So when we have something critical to say, we should ask before we say it, is this person my business? Is this person my business? If they're in your family, they're your business. If they're a close friend, the kind of friend that you would have the courage to say something critical to from your mouth to their ears, then they're your business. If you are an authority and these people are underneath your authority, then it is your business. If it's somebody that you are discipling, that you are raising up and training in Jesus' name, then it's your business. If it's somebody outside of that, then the scripture says, mind your own business. Don't criticize one another, brothers, he says. And then look what he says next. Don't criticize one another, brothers. He who criticizes a brother or judges his brother criticizes the law and judges the law. So that word criticize, your version of the Bible may translate it, speak against. The, the, Peter uses this word twice. In the very next book of the Bible, 1 Peter. But it's interesting. He uses that phrase, speak against or criticize, to describe what outsiders, and in fact more than outsiders, what persecutors are trying to do to Christians. He's saying these persecutors, they're accusing you. They're speaking against you. They're criticizing you. And how awful would it be if we treated one another the way that persecutors would treat us, that we would speak against one another in the same way that somebody who wanted to do harm to the church would speak against the church. And he says, if you criticize one another, then you're not just criticizing one another, you're actually criticizing the law and judging the law. Now, I don't need to spend 10 minutes convincing you that we criticize other brothers and sisters in ways that we shouldn't. I don't need to give you some illustration. I don't need to tell you a story about one time I said this and it was wrong. We're just guilty. You know, I mean, I think we could all lift our hands today and go, yeah, guilty. 
the, the question is, is not are we guilty, we are. It's how do we stop being guilty? Because I've heard this message before. I've preached this message before. In fact, James has already said this. He's actually said this a bunch to us already. And it's like, we get the idea. We get it. You don't like us. You just want to tell us mean things. We get it. We're not great. But he repeats it over and over again because it's, it, it probably is the hardest thing to actually pull off. Not criticizing one another. But instead of telling us how to stop, he, he tells us why we should stop. And he says we should stop because when we criticize a brother, we criticize the law and we judge the law. Now, James is a big fan of Leviticus chapter 19. I know you are as well, but just in case you're not, you can turn there with me. He actually has Leviticus chapter 19 in mind when he's writing this section of, of James. And he's already referred to it back in James chapter 2. When he refers to the royal law and to loving our neighbor, this is Leviticus 19, verse 18. Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the the Lord. So that's the royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. James refers to it. But he also has in mind verse 16 in what he's speaking to us today about. You must not go about spreading slander among your people. You must not jeopardize your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. So what James is saying is when you and I criticize a brother or a sister, we are actually becoming judges of the law and criticizing the law because he says, listen, all of you know it's wrong. All of you know it's forbidden. And we see it right here in Leviticus chapter 9. You know that this is against the rules. So when you do it anyway, what you are saying is I'm above the law. What you're saying is I know more than God. Or maybe that's not your heart today, but we feel empowered to be the exemption. That's the best thing about being a leader. That's the best thing about having control and leadership and authority is that you get to be exempt. Have you ever been a manager or something and everybody has to be there at 8.30, but you're the manager, so you can show up at 9? Nobody's going to say anything to you. Why? Because you're the manager. So it feels good to come into the parking lot. Everyone else is there but you're not there yet and they're just waiting on you to walk in and tell them what to do. It feels good. It feels good to be the exception. Parents, it feels good sometimes to send your kids to bed and you get to stay up late. feels good. We love to be the exception. In fact, we love it so much that we include ourselves as the exception, not just to rules of society and workplace and home, but to even God's law. Yeah, I know it's wrong, but... And he says, when you do that, it's a double offense. When you criticize a brother or sister, it's a double offense. Not only are we sinning against that person, but we're sinning against God and His law and His way and His rule, which is good for us, because if it was just a sin against the person, that would not be enough for us to stop. Why? Because they deserve it. They started it. They fired the first shot. I'm guessing, God forbid, there be any among us who would start something vicious about someone else unprovoked. That we would pull out our weapon and we would shoot at somebody unprovoked. But that's usually not what happens to us Christians because Christians are good people. We would never participate in something like that. So we let someone else fire the first shot. We just want to fire the final shot. They started it. They said this about me. I'm going to say this about them. 
So if it's just a sin against the person, we will never stop because we will always find a reason to exclude ourselves from the rule. But today it's good news for us in the sense that it's bad news. Not only is our criticism towards other people uh, against them, it's also against God. It's against his law, his way, his rule, which also clears the muddy water for us. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes I wrestle with, is it gossip if it's true? You know, well, hey, I wasn't lying. I wasn't exaggerating. It's just, it's a fact. Am I not allowed to share facts anymore? Would I not be able to share Wikipedia? These are facts. Well, this this gives us some clarity today. It doesn't matter if it's true. It doesn't matter whether that person is guilty or not. If what you're saying is actually accurate. Because it's not just a sin against them. It's a sin against God. We become judges of the law. We become critics of the law, and by it we see ourselves as above the law. And he says in verse 12, There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. So James says, listen, don't criticize one another because when you do, you become a judge. You act like a lawgiver. And he says, slow your roll a little bit. There's only one judge and one lawgiver I want to show you the lawgiver and the judge. Exodus chapter 20. God is giving his law to the people. In fact, it's the main event. It's the Ten Commandments, the heart of the law. And right after the Ten Commandments, these are the verses that follow. So verse 17 is the last of the commandments. Do not covet your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife. And this is what verse 18 says. And all the people of God witnessed the thunder and lightning, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain surrounded by smoke. When the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. You speak to us and we will listen, they said to Moses, but don't let God speak to us or we will die. Verse 21 says, And the people remained standing at a distance as Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. This is their reaction to the law that was given to them on Mount Sinai. It wasn't, God, we don't want God to speak to us because we don't want rules, we don't like rules, and he's rude to have given us rules. Their response was, we can't talk to God because all we see on his mountain is lightning and thunder and smoke. Moses, we know we need the law. Why don't you go up and represent us? But do not let him speak to us. And the last thing they see is Moses headed up into the darkness. This is the lawgiver, which is a good reminder for us because when we think about rules, when we think about laws, you're thinking of that third grade teacher who was super old, had been teaching at your school for 50 years, wearing the same pink skirt every day for the last 50 years, and she got her grandma shoes on. No offense to grandma shoes. I love grandma shoes. She got her glasses. She pushes them up in the middle. When we think of rules, that's our picture So it's no wonder we exclude ourselves from following the rules. But this is the lawgiver on his mountain with thunder and lightning. 
sound of trumpet, surrounded by smoke and great darkness. Let's fast forward to the, see the judge, same God, because you might be thinking, well, that's Old Testament. That's Old Testament. Well, let me tell you something that's going to happen in, in the future. Revelation chapter 15. Then I saw another great and awesome inspiring sign in heaven. Seven angels with seven last plagues, for with them God's wrath will be completed. So this is a picture of yet to come. God is going to judge the world. He is. He's going to pour out his wrath on the world. On sin and evil, he will have the final say. And as he's pouring out that wrath, there will be a rebirthing process, a recreation process of this earth. But this is the judgment that he's going to pour out. It's going to come in seven last plagues. It says, and I also saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire and those who had won the victory from the beast, his image and the number of the of his name were standing on the sea of glass with harps from God and they sang a song to God's servant Moses and the song of the lamb so this is the song great and awe inspiring are your works lord god the almighty righteous and true are your ways king of the nations lord you will not fear who will not fear and glorify your name because you alone are holy because all the nations will come and worship before you because your righteous acts have been revealed And after this, I looked, and the heavenly sanctuary, the tabernacle of testimony, was open. Out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, dressed in clean, bright linen with gold sashes wrapped around their chests. One of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven gold bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Then the sanctuary was filled with smoke from God's glory and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. And in chapter 16 is these seven plagues. Just so we're all on the same page with what judgment looks like. It looks like sores. It looks like the sea turning to blood. It looks like other bodies of water turning to blood. It looks like scorching heat. It looks like extreme darkness. And it looks like the releasing of demons to torment those left on the earth. And it looks like a giant hailstorm. This is how he's going to judge the earth. I don't know if you've ever had to stand before a judge before, but even on the lowest level, it's kind of uncomfortable. Some great friends of ours were having a a custody hearing, and they were doing an adoption process, and I went to be supportive, and uh, they pulled me out of the crowd to be a character witness, which is good. You want to be a character witness for people who have great character. Uh, Otherwise, it could get a little awkward. And so I said, of course, I would do it. And they brought us up before the judge, and it was me and some other people. And sure enough, they make you raise your right hand. You swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I wasn't planning on lying, but I was definitely not going to lie after that moment, it just felt like a big moment. And this was on the fourth or fifth floor of an unmarked building downtown. Imagine standing before this judge with his smoke and his glory and his wrath. You're like, well, hopefully that will never happen. No, I'm telling you right now, it will happen. In fact, Jesus said that you and I, we will have to give an account for every careless word that we've spoken in front of this judge. And my heart is ripped open because I'm guilty. I'm guilty and I don't pretend to be innocent. And my heart is ripped open today because I know I'm probably not gonna be able to stop on my own because there's nothing 
easier than criticizing a brother or sister. There's nothing easier than becoming exempt from the law to excluding myself, making myself the exception. And I love how James finishes this section. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? James is just dropping the mic on this section. Who are you? It's the ultimate question. Who are you? The section before, he's talked about pride and humility and that we need to humble ourselves in the presence of God. Well, if you and I are criticizing other brothers and sisters, it is proof that we have not humbled ourselves before God because there's not an awareness of our own weakness. There's not an awareness of our own frailty. There's not an awareness of our own struggle. And so James is just reminding them, hey, who are you to judge? Who are you to forget your own struggle and become judge and jury of someone else's struggle. Reminds me of the story of King David in Second uh, Samuel chapter 12. You remember King David should have been off to war and he wasn't and he decided to stay back. He felt so invincible that he could just delegate his responsibility. And while he should have been off to war, he looks over, he sees Bathsheba across the street and he's married and She's married, but he was feeling it. And so he summons her and they unionize. And when they unionize, she becomes pregnant. Now he's got to cover it up. So he brings home her husband, Uriah, from the front lines. Because he's hoping that when Uriah gets home after having been gone a long time, he and Bathsheba will unionize and then he'll find out she's pregnant and it will, everything will be covered over. But Uriah, man, he's a good dude. And he's like, if my band of brothers is not able to come home and be with their wives, then I'm not going to be with my wife. And so he just hangs out at the gate of the palace, won't go home to be with his wife. And so David tries to get him drunk in order to get him home with his wife. And he still won't do it. And so David's only option is send word to the general's Uriah's back, send him to the very front lines where the battle is the thickest and when the battle's on, step back so that Uriah dies. And that's exactly what happens. And then David takes Bathsheba as his wife. Everything is good. And here comes the prophet Nathan. Because listen, if you are a son of God or a daughter of God, you're not gonna get away with it. You're not. God loves you too much to let you live a consequence-free life. Because a consequence-free life is not what's best for you and it's not what's best for the kingdom of Jesus and the name of Jesus in your home and in the city and the world. So you're always going to be confronted. If you won't confess, you will eventually be confronted. That secret will not make it to the grave. So the prophet Nathan comes, 2 Samuel chapter 12. So the Lord sent Nathan to David and when he arrived, he said to him, he's going to tell him a story. There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one small lamb that he had bought. It lived and grew up with him and his children. It shared his meager food and drank from his cup. It slept in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. So it's their pet sheep. It's kind of strange, but we're just going with it. 
Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for his guest. Now you've got to remember, David was a shepherd. So there were probably a sheep that David favorited. There were sheep that he loved. There were sheep that were close that he probably treated like a pet along the way. And so when Nathan's telling him, listen, this rich guy, he had more than enough. In fact, he had so much, he couldn't treat him like pets because there were so many. This poor guy, he just had the one and it lived with him and it slept with him and it does everything. David hits the roof when he finds out. Says he was infuriated with the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die because he has done this thing and shown him no pity. He must pay four lambs for that one lamb. And Nathan replied to David, you are the man. Which when I'm, I'm hearing this story, I'm like, David, what kind of idiot are you? You're going to get all uptight about lambs? You just murdered a man. And before that, you slept with his wife. And you're bothered about one tiny, worthless lamb? How dumb were you? It was a prophet who knocked on the door. If a prophet knocks on your door, do not answer. (laughs) It's bad for you. They never bring good news. And how could you be so dumb to judge this guy when your sins are so many? But somehow we get tractor beamed into somebody else's struggle. And all of a sudden we become righteous. Because what we do is we judge their struggle by our strength. And it's not struggle for struggle. So we look at somebody else who's a terrible dad. And we judge them. Even though we're a terrible husband. Even though we've not looked at our wife in the eyes in weeks. But oh hey, that dad, he missed the last, uh, last baseball game kid's going to go off the rails. It doesn't matter that you haven't held your wife's hand, you haven't brought her flowers, you haven't said something kind to her a long, long time ago, because that's not what we do. We judge other people's struggles by our strength. It's not struggle for struggle. And James says to us today, who are you? Who are you? Who am I to criticize? It's what Jesus was saying as powerful as it's ever been said in Matthew chapter 6, Sermon on the Mount, these are familiar words. Even if this is your first time in church, Matthew chapter 7, do not judge so that you won't be judged, for the judgment you use will be used on you, and the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and look, there's a log in your eye. Hypocrite, first take the log out of your eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I actually brought a speck with me. It's right here. You can't see it. And even this is too big to actually get caught in your eye. Your eyelashes wouldn't allow it in there. But this is a speck. It's right there. And Jesus says, listen, if your brother has a speck in his eye, it's probably best just to leave it alone because you have a giant log (laughs) in your eye. 
And, and I brought two logs, actually, because I got more than one struggle. <laughs> I mean, I'm struggling with criticizing brothers and sisters. I just raised my hand. First one to say, guilty, huge log. Uh, and then right before it, I mean, he's talking about pride and humility. I mean, there's nobody in here more prideful than me. So, and so that's like two for two just in James. And that's just in the last five verses of James. I mean, we rewind to like the last 10 verses. I got 10 more logs in my eye. And Jesus says, this is what you're like. How, how are you going to pull a speck out of somebody's eye when you got one of these jammed in yours? Who are you? Who are you? And here's the message today. The message is, these logs in our eye, this is our business. Mind your own business. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 11 says, these logs in our eye, this is our business. Our brother's speck, not our business. Not our business until there are no logs in our eyes. So if there's anybody in here today, you could say, I'm log free then criticize away. If you're like, I've been sawing logs my whole life since I became a believer, one gets in and I grind it up, it's so great, I'm log free all the time, then let me confess all my sin to you, O Lord Jesus. But man, just struggle, struggle. I mean, some of us can't hold ourselves together and we're criticizing other people. Who are you, James says. So what's the answer? I mean, I'm demoralized. James has hurt my feelings again. I think the only answer that's stirring around in us is I got to take a vow of silence. That's the only way that we're going to put an end to this. So you you can actually do that. You can't actually take a vow, but you can go and join a trappist monastery you can be a monk or a nun these are these are these are real nuns for you ladies you want to be in on this and you would move away to a monastery it's of the benedict uh, line and uh, you would take three vows and the third one would include a vow of silence now there are some options for you that would allow you to speak and two primary ones if you are a trappist monk or nun you can speak if you're working on a project at the monastery, because they believe in working with their hands, so they do these projects, and if you need to communicate with one another to accomplish your project, then you are allowed to talk. The second main way that you are allowed to speak, if you are a Trappist monk or nun, is if you need to confess your sin to somebody in authority over you. So those are your two options to speak. Is that, is that what we're doing? Is that our only hope so that our words are what God wants them to be? No, uh, I think, just in my opinion, a vow of silence is not the answer because God has already ordained your words to be some of the most powerful kingdom weapons on earth. And for you to take a vow of silence would be a terrible tragedy for the gospel of Jesus. But we can do better with them. I love what Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29 says when it says, uh, don't let any foul language come out of your mouth. I may have told you before, but I used to be a bowler. Back in the day, I had my own bowling ball, and every Tuesday, a van would come and pick me up at my house, and I'd get in with my bag and my bowling ball. 
we would go to the Holiday Lanes in Springfield, Missouri. The name of our team was the Bad Dudes. <laughs> and we would bowl in a league. So I got pretty good in that season. And if you are a bowler, if you're one of the brethren, then you know that the line at where the lane begins, that's the foul line. And if you cross it, then an alarm is supposed to go off. An alarm goes off. And the way you know somebody's crossed it, not only does the alarm go off, but they always fall on their face because that's real slick out there. So when the scripture says, don't let any foul language come out of your mouth, that's what I think of. Don't cross the line with your words. Don't violate the rules with your words. Don't let any foul language come from your mouth. And then it says, but only what is good for the building up of other people. See, the answer today to speaking against one another is not to stop speaking. The answer to speaking against is to start speaking for. Instead of being in the destruction business with our words, we should be in the construction business. We shouldn't be a demolition crew. We should be a building crew. People all around you, even right now where you're sitting, they need to be built up. They need to be built up. It's like the story of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. God's city, Jerusalem, had been laid to waste by the Babylonians, totally destroyed. And after a generation, some Israelites were allowed to go back and live in Jerusalem. But when they, they got there, there was no wall to protect them. And so they were vulnerable and they were exposed. And Nehemiah comes onto the scene and God uses him to rebuild the walls. That's the ministry of your words. Building up For those who feel vulnerable and exposed. Lots of us today feel vulnerable and exposed. We've got some high school seniors in here with us. They're on their way to graduation and they feel vulnerable and exposed. Now they're teenage boys. They're not going to admit that, but they do. And they need some man to put their hands on their shoulders and say, we believe, I believe that you can go off to school You can work hard and you can do everything that God has put in your heart to do. Some young parents in here, you've got toddlers and babies. The only thing on your mind right now is diapers and toilets. And you're like, how do I transition this kid from a diaper to a toilet? And why have they not transitioned yet? And all my other friends, their kids are already in diapers. They're potty trained. What's the matter with me? What's the matter with him? What's the matter with her? Some of you cried on the way to church today because you can't figure out how to potty train your kid. You know how I know that? Been there. (laughs) And some parent of upper elementary school kids needs to come and lay their hands on the shoulders of this young mom and dad and say, they're going to make it. You're going to make it. I can promise you when they're fourth grade, they will not be wearing diapers. Third grade, maybe. Fourth grade, no. Some of you are getting ready to be empty nesters. You're so excited that your kids are launching into the world, but you feel vulnerable and exposed. Somebody's got to come alongside and build up the walls. Say it's going to be great. You've done a great job. Your kids are smart. Kids are good. Kids come to church. You're going to make it, and they're going to make it. Got some amazing singles. We have some of the most amazing singles in Houston that call Bayou City home. 
and they want to be married. And I don't know why you're not married. I honestly don't. They feel vulnerable and exposed. And they got to hear somebody say, listen, you're not half a person right now. You're not half a person. You're a whole person. And the Bible says that your kingdom potential will never be higher than it is right now as a single person. These are some of your best days, not just your waiting days. There's a grandma and grandpa. They feel vulnerable and exposed. Their, their house used to be the center of the family. And it's not anymore. Everybody used to come over and sit at their table. And now they're off to somebody else's table. And they're lucky if they're getting a phone call once a week from their kids. And once every month from their grandkids. And there's some grandmas and grandpas right now here thinking, maybe my best and most useful days are behind. And somebody has to come with words and look at them and say, your best days are not behind you. In this culture, you are sage among the ignorant. And we need you to be in this family. And we need your wisdom. And we need your grace. And we need your experience. Your most influential days are not behind. These are the days that God can use you the most. But right now, we feel vulnerable and exposed. And how will we be built up if the people of God do not come around and open their mouths? See, the double wound of speaking against one another is not only do we tear each other down, but then there's nobody left to build us up. We already feel awful all on our alone, all alone on our own. It's what our culture does to us because we're aliens and strangers here. And man, God forbid that I would use these powerful weapons to tear down when he's given me a ministry and given you a ministry of building up. So today, if we just just try to stop speaking against, we'll never make it. But what if we redirected today? What if we made a shift? And my words are not for destruction. My words are for construction. My words are not just, a, my words are not against. My words can be for. There's no telling how God might use us in the next six days. If we would really use our words to be for, there are not enough seats in Cypress, Texas to hold all the people that would want to come and be a part of this family with you. If we just simply used our words for better than what we're using them for now. Let's pray. God, I do lead the way and just say guilty. Guilty as charged. We don't try to shirk the responsibility. We don't try to talk our way out of the seriousness of it. We want to turn from it, but help us to turn towards something better. Help us to turn towards something better. Spirit of God, let your power rest on us. This is one thing I can say for certain, willpower alone will not be enough. So come and place the power of my will with the power of your will. We would like to give that a try for once. In Jesus' name we pray.